I'm Jasmine Moradi, and you're listening to the Queens of Tech podcast, a podcast series about raising the voice of workplace champions. 60 plus questions in around 30 minutes with women, non-binary and transgender influencers about their journey into STEM, science, technology, engineering and mathematics. I started the Queens of Tech podcast initiative in May 2022 because I would like to retain more women, non-binary and transgenders in the tech industry. Talent is out there, but our work environment needs to improve for all to feel safer, stay authentic and to be valued for our contributions. My vision is to raise the workplace ecosystem for all in the tech industry by killing the imposter syndrome, stopping bad behavior and increasing equity opportunities. Each podcast talk is built around 60 plus questions regarding upbringing, education, career path, DEIB, and future advice. My mission is to bridge the gap between schools and workplaces by getting to the heart of my guests' personal life and career journey to inspire other girls, women, non-binary, and transgenders to unleash their full potential to reach top leadership roles in the tech industry. My goal is to raise the voice of tech champions around the world and together with companies, investors, and politicians, raise the challenges and opportunities around equity, inclusive diversity, and belonging in our workplaces. Enough is enough. I would like to enforce companies to build a sustainable, inclusive culture, to retain diverse talent, so we keep the workplace power equity to continue building future diverse and inclusive products. Your voice matters. In this episode, I'm very excited to welcome my guest, Tech Queen Rebecca Jones, Head of Customer Success at Access Pay Suite. Jasmine, thank you for this invitation. I'm so flattered. I'm very happy to have you joining us from London, UK today. How are you? I am just fabulous today. Thank you. I'm happy to hear. Now, let us dive into your journey into STEM. Hope you're ready for the Queens of Tech 60 plus questions. I'm ready. Let's warm up with a few fun facts about you. How would you describe your personality in three hashtags? Hashtag curious, hashtag funny, hashtag kind. How would you describe your life in three sentences? Never a dull moment, too many ideas, too little time, and the best is yet to come. What kind of music stimulates and motivates you the most? All the divas, first names only, Whitney, Beyonce, Mariah, Janet, Brittany. What is your personal motto? My personal motto is, why not? And this is my motto because being open-minded, open-hearted, it actually has brought in new opportunities, people, ideas, expansion mindset, and it just reminds me to keep stretching, softening my edges. What is your favorite book? A bold choice. It's In Cold Blood by Truman Capote. And I just find the writing to be surgically precise. There's no filler. It also captures the American Midwest ethos in a very specific way without resorting to caricature or condescension. I think it's a perfect book. What is your favorite podcast? I couldn't choose one. I have two. So the first is Where Should We Begin with Esther Perel. So these are recorded therapy sessions, and it really helps me understand, you know, personal dynamics, interpersonal dynamics. I always chew over the episodes for a few days and really reflect on them. And then I really love how I built this, which is founders and businesses telling their stories. How did they come up with the idea? How did they build out their business? And I, I recommend the MailChimp episode. I think it's a great one. Mac or PC? Mac. Say something interesting about you that most people don't know. 
that I love to play mahjong. What is your hidden talent? Tap dancing. If you were going to write a book about your life, what would a title be? The Juicy Jones Manifesto. Great start, Rebecca. Now, let us dig deeper. Our childhood has an effect on our adulthood. Our early experiences shape our belief about ourselves, others, and the world. Now, I want to discover your childhood. Where did you grow up? I grew up in California. What was your dream job as a child? It was a tie between flight attendant, fashion designer, or a veterinarian. What was your favorite subject in school? Social studies and art. What was your least favorite subject? Gym. What is your earliest memory of technology and the arrival of the internet? It's a, my a vision of my older brother in his bedroom on the better floor. He's taking apart and rebuilding a Commodore 64. And this is a, one of the first PCs and it had this teeny tiny black screen with green characters on it. And then arrival of the internet was a dream come true. So I remember going to the library at uni and accessing my first email account in a program called Pine. Which were the three first technology gadgets you own? A cassette tape Walkman. So I'm really dating myself. An Atari 2600 and then a Nintendo. Who was your female non-binary or transgender role model growing up and why? Oh, without question, it was Wonder Woman because she was very powerful, confident, solving crime, and she was very glamorous. How do you think where you grew up and the school you went to and the generation you come from influence your education and career choice? This question I love. Insofar that education was known and available and expected and encouraged. Um, but I would say that the culture still had these signals that maybe being a career woman, especially in a man's industry, like banking or tech or even law, is quite a bold choice. So women in these areas were often thought of as very masculine women or bitches, or there would be a lot of very gendered language around this. So entering these fields naturally carried that label with it. Now, I'm going to read two quotes. First one, how does the universe expect me to choose a career path at 16? I can't even choose what I want for dinner. Second, Abraham Lincoln said, I quote, the best way to predict your future is to create it. So Rebecca, I want to know the choices behind your career path. Where and what did you study at university? So I did my undergraduate degrees in the state and I have degrees in economics and international relations. I thought I would go into the foreign service or be a diplomat. And then I did my MBA in the UK and I focused on innovation and entrepreneurship. And since we're talking about tech, I thought I would share with you my thesis, which is anti-bias interventions in the software development life cycle. Who and what influenced you to get into your choice of field? No one. My decision was based entirely on the type of life that I wanted and my curiosity to learn more about economics and tech, actually. So I knew I wanted to live in a big city, live independently, have the resources to travel and support myself and work in a field where I would actually learn about and apply economics. I also knew I wanted an office job. What professional roles have you had before that led you to the current one? Well, I started out many years ago on Wall Street working for J.P. Morgan. So I was actually recruited because of my programming skills. So I came out with an economics degree, but I also had from my econometrics, some SAS and SQL programming. Nowadays, SQL is very common, but back then, not so much. So I did a credit training program and then a rotation through capital markets and trading. So I quickly tossed aside my programming things. I didn't want to be a programmer. And I worked over time, worked for, for a few different things. So everything from risk management, relationship management, and I eventually moved to London 
And my last job in finance was a Royal Bank of Canada. And then I made a big change in my life, which is I went from team manager, a team role back to individual contributor. And I went from banking to tech startups. So I joined a fintech startup as employee number 22. And let me tell you, I was butcher, baker, candlestick maker, everything post-sales. And I built up that team. I learned how to scale. How do you build it from scratch? And then I did it again, (laughs) a glutton for punishment, again, at an open banking embedded payments startup. I was employee 28 and that was eventually acquired. And so that's how I I am today. So what does Access Pay Suite do? It's a business management software and it serves medium and small sized businesses. It started in the UK. They serve a lot of verticals, CRM, compliance, hospitality. And the newest kid on the block is my division, which is payments. What is your title and what is your main responsibilities? I am the head of customer success for the payments division at the Access Group, also known as Access Pay Suite. So my responsibilities are quite simply customers, teams, and strategies. So for customers, I'm helping them get the most out of their payment products so that they can get on with doing their business. For my teams, I inherited teams made up from several different acquired companies and some external hires. So that's about harmonizing that approach, rebaselining the skill set, and taking them in the future. And also the strategy piece. So this is really around, on the team side, future-proofing. So building scalable processes, professional progression, preparing for growth in that customer base. But also front of mind is always how do we embed the voice of the customer in the organization? What are our customers thinking? What's their sentiment and horizon scanning? What's next for payments? What's next for our customers? And how are those customer expectations changing? How do we stay at pace or infinite? I really don't like this being on the back foot. It's all about how we can keep pace or be the leaders in that area. How did you get the role? They actually reached out to me on LinkedIn and invited me to apply. And truth be told, I didn't understand that they were in the payment space yet. But I thought, oh, that's really interesting. So I did apply. I knew the MD from reputation within the the payments ecosystem and really respected her and her career. And so I met her, Andrea Dunlop, and I also met the new chief customer officer. And they're both leaders that I immediately responded to. And I thought, yeah, I get it. I get what you're trying to do here. Really exciting. I understand the challenge in the payment space around building a new team, a new prospect. And I was looking for that new opportunity. I knew I wanted to build and scale. I wanted it to have that texture of a startup, but I wanted more of that safer corporate ladder because I was a bit burned down of looking over my shoulder to how much runway did we have left? Would this business even be a viable thing? Six months time, 12 months time, 18 months time. So I'm encouraged that I have a bit more time without having to worry, have that runway burning in the background. What does a typical workday look like for you, Deb? It's a lot of meetings, but this week has been really satisfying. I've been doing a lot of one-on-one coaching and upskilling sessions because we're rolling out a new deck and script for customer engagement motions. And that's been so interesting to see how each people have used theme artifact, but they produce such different approaches. And so that helps me going back to that strategy and teams place, say, okay, how do we approach this and make this a difference to... How do we land this with the customer in the best possible way? So I mentioned that because, again, my days are a lot of meetings, but it's also taking what I'm hearing and learning in those meetings and translating into how do we do things better, faster, more consistently at a, at a high level. So then after the meetings, I follow up or prep for other meetings <laughs> and I'm trying to move the needle on different projects, doing that deeper work on data analysis and really digging into what are our customers telling us? What do we know from the data and also from just anecdotally what we know? And outside of work hours, I'm always thinking of how do we better engage and support our customers? I love the quote, choose a job you love and you will never have to work a day in your life. So Rebecca, what do you love about your role? 
I love being in the payment space. I think it's so exciting because it changes so rapidly. And as part of a wider story, I mean, I even think about the way I pay for things even two years ago is very different than how I pay now. Now I can pay with my watch. Now I can I have an Apple Pay wallet or even now it feels slightly old fashioned to be tapping a physical debit card anymore, you know? So I'd like to be part of the story because I think even two years, five years, 10 years from now, there's still a revolution to be wild. Um, the role itself, I know that I make an impact every single day on my team, on my customers, and on the future of Access Pay Suite. So that is extremely satisfying. But where I get the most satisfaction is through developing and upskilling talent. So seeing people in roles that maybe they were a bit shy about or learning a skill that they were a bit suspicious of, but now they go out there and they thrive and they grow in their role. And that's deeply satisfying. What would you then say is the best experience you've had in this role so far? Any examples? Well, I've been here seven months. And so I would have to say, I don't have a specific example. Just right now, it's realizing what a complex puzzle it is. And it just feels very exciting that I get to have it and can really put my signature on it. And then what is the biggest challenge you've encountered so far? And how did you tackle it? So the payments division is at this point built up out of an acquisition strategy. So that's new to me, but I'm needing to integrate all of these different customers and even the talent from the acquired companies into a single harmonized model. Yes, we have to localize according to a few things, but that's interesting for me. That's also just a massive challenge. How do I do that? And I'm building alongside, you know, what's the divisional prospect and how there are only going to be more acquisitions in the wings and we also have a new big sales push. So I'm conscious that there's a lot of change that happened for the customers, a lot of change that have happened for the talent. And we're just getting in for more change. And I know that as humans, we're prone to resist that change. And the challenge is that all of these things need to happen at pace. So I'm really looking to, you know, that order of operations, get the rails in place, be efficient and effective for the customers. We want them to have a great experience, but I want to put my arms around the team as well and the people and just say, listen, you've come this far, let's go further. What do you wish everybody understood about your role? Customer success is about internal and external customers. So when you think about customers, typically we think it's just those people that are buying the products. But actually, we have a lot of internal customers. And the human element, whether internal or external, is the wild card, right? So you can't reduce everything into playbooks and artifacts and templates. So this role that I think maybe not everyone appreciates is it's so much about influence. It's about being able to flex to the audience in the situation. Again, internal stakeholders, external customers customers. And quite simply, it's part cat herding and part snake charming. What is the one common myth about your profession or feel that you want to disapprove? I think people think customer success is a lot of fluff, but honestly, this is where everything gets sorted. If it doesn't fit very neatly into a box, it ends up with customer success. So uh, the temptation is to throw any problem, bit large or small, over the fence to customer success. And let me tell you, it normally gets sorted out wrongly or rightly. And customer success is under a huge amount of pressure, especially in the payment space. If something's wrong with the way things payments are going, we have to get it done really fast. Uh, I think in the profession, in the field, there's often a perception that tech is cold and uncaring, that this march towards digitization, AI automation, that we're removing the human element. But I think ultimately, these are things that are coming in to actually free up people to do more valuable or interesting or impactful work. And we're not removing the human element. I'm just saying that it's being remixed and, and reallocated. What do you love about working in the tech industry? always changing, always pushing forward, asking us to reevaluate how we do things. And I really do think we're just at the tip of the iceberg. Oprah Winfrey said, I quote, sitting like a queen, a queen is not afraid to fail. 
Failure is not a stepping stone to greatness. So Rebecca, what has by far been your biggest achievement in your career? The first is making the pivot from banking to tech. It was much harder than I expected. And so I'm really proud of myself for doing that. Also being willing to shift from a leadership role, a title, a certain title, a certain packet and saying, okay, I'm going back to individual contributor. It's not about the role, the team, the packet. It's about the experience, that longer term vision for my career. Also moving to London. I've also moved to different companies. I've done a lot of change and sometimes in a short period of time. And I always emerge successful. Yeah, that's my biggest achievement. What is then the biggest fact that has helped you become successful in your success habits? Yeah, my willingness to try and fail. Resilience, kind of stick with itness. And, you know, when I do try and fail, I say, okay, no one died here. Life goes on. Also just asking a lot of questions. How do you measure your own performance at work? It's a combination of hard data plus sentiment. So for hard data, am I exceeding my targets that are put in place by my company? Did I hit my numbers? Hard data, how does my team feel? What's my employee NPS score? Where are my comments from the team? Asking them, how are we doing as a team, as a leader, as a business? But sentiment, I have to ask myself, am I getting what I need and want in order for me to grow, both as a career person, a person as a human being? And then I just ask myself, am I happy here? Am I learning? Am I growing? What's the next opportunity? Can I create it here? Do I need to start planning ahead? As you mentioned, with success comes failure. What is your biggest failure in your career and what did you learn from it? This happened fairly early in my career. It was a renegotiation of a syndicate loan deal across companies and countries. And it landed on my desk at the last minute by a more senior person. And I just waited too long to reach out for support on a big problem. It was way, way, way bigger than my experience or expertise allowed. You know, by the time I realized the complexity and the actual gravity of it, so the deal size, the reputation of the people involved, how long it would take to get the legal opinions, the due diligence, the data analysis, that deadline was getting closer and closer. And I panicked and I actually sat on it for a couple of days. It took me a couple of days to finally have that come to Jesus moment and talk to my manager and say, okay, I need you to call a a deal team here. I'm really out of my depth. So it did work out in the end. Um, It was a lot of crying and sleepless nights and repentance, but that really taught me to speak up and early and when I needed help and pay particular attention to the solution so I can learn for the next time. It also just taught me to come to my manager and say, this is too big and not now it's your problem, but to say, this is too big. I think I can help do this in the time frame. I'm going to need help with the other. So you come with that. And also to push back, I should have immediately said to that senior person or fact to my manager, this has landed on my desk. I've really never done something like this before, rather than just trying to move myself. What would you say is inspiring and motivates you the most in your role and career right now? It's the payment space. Again, I sound like a broken record, but it's the art of the possible, right? So the payment space is dynamic. It's evolving. There are new players all the time. Then we also have some reaching maturity and we see some consolidation. There's always intrigue, plot twists. And these are things that affect people's lives. For instance, I went to a restaurant and I had a great payment products experience. So it was time to pay for the bill and the staff invited us to pay via QR code for the checkout. Each of us at the table scanned the code and you entered whatever it is you wanted to pay. And in real time, that amount due was being updated and we could all pay however we wanted to pay. And according to our preference, right? And as soon as I left the restaurant, I messaged my MD and I said, we might want to buy this. This is incredible. Let us now jump into the influence of mentors, role models, champions, and sponsors. Role models can consciously or subconsciously be a powerful force in our lives. In addition, champions can stand up and advocate for us and open up the world of possibilities. 
Sponsors match emerging talent with leaders and influential employees who can help us move ahead in our careers. Rebecca, do you have a mentor, champion, or sponsor today? At my current job, I'm still finding and looking for that right sponsor or champion. So I've been in the role seven months, so I'm still looking, still in the dating phase. But I do have a mentor externally, and she's Gen Z, actually. She's brilliant. I think it's important for you to have mentors, not just that are older than you, but younger than you as well. Who's the woman, non-binary, or transgender role model you look up to in your field? Anne Bowden, uh, the founder of Starling Bank. She's an incredible talent and skill, and that is bold to start a bank. But this challenger bank that she started really recalibrated the customer experience and is a force to be reckoned with. That is not an easy task, especially in the massive challenges and regulatory burden in that sector. And banking is it's hard to disrupt. So kudos. History shows that it has been more common for men having mentors, champions, and sponsors in business than women. So Rebecca, how important do you think it is to have a mentor champion or a sponsor during one's career? This is a hot take. I think it's a bit overplayed. I think there's a bit of a false promise in it, right? I would rather have a what I'm calling a personal board of directors. So that's some allies, maybe some kind of champion, sponsor, et cetera. But it's also your peers and some of the people that you're coming out together. Because what I would say is over time, you start to see some of your peers in leadership positions or in different companies. And it's important to be building those networks out as well. And sometimes they become a champion or sponsor over time. But most importantly, you need a sounding board. Different jobs, people are at different life stages. And I just think there's a lot of value in opening up that conversations. I've had sponsors leave a business or leave an industry. So when I really had developed a good relationship, which I don't regret, but sometimes that's putting all of your eggs in one basket. It's risky. So it's true. Those alliances will open doors, but it's also true that you need to be your own vocal advocate. Let's move on to leadership. Adina Friedman, president and CEO of Nasdaq said, I quote, empowering those around you to be heard and valued makes a difference between a leader who simply instructs and one who inspires. And Shelly Sandberg, ex-CEO of Facebook said, I quote, Leadership is about making others better as a result of your presence and making sure that the impact lasts in your absence. So Rebecca, what does leadership mean to you? It means getting the people the tools, skills, and feedback that they need to fly, to succeed. So I want to get out of their way so they can fly. Leadership also means being human, creating a safe space to try and fail, speaking up, sharing wins and losses, and saying, hey, I made a mistake here. I made a bad call here. Just be human. What do you consider a good versus a bad leader? Good looks like inclusive, focused, inspirational, collaborative. Bad looks like administration and surveillance, you know, someone who maybe doesn't give any feedback. I strongly believe there should be no surprises whatsoever when you get to a performance discussion. Those should be active and ongoing conversations. It's bad as someone who doesn't put in the work to have those sometimes difficult discussions. Who is your favorite female, non-binary or transgender tech leader and why? Ellie Devine, the president of the UK and Ireland of MasterCard. So she understands the assignment, by which I mean she wields significant power and uses it both in to great success on her business side. You know, she really uses that platform and that power to promote and encourage things like social mobility for young people, female entrepreneurship, small business culture. She does talk a lot about equity and inclusion. She's an absolute dream mentor of mine. Kelly, if you're listening or anyone knows Kelly, please, where do I apply to be mentored by you? How do you describe yourself as a leader? I would describe myself as fair, 
and open and transparent. I give a lot of opportunity and I really encourage growth and development. I will say I don't spoon feed. I encourage people to come with proposed solutions, not just questions or problems. It's easier to ask a question than it is to think through. So I'm thinking two steps ahead. It's not that I necessarily enjoy that or want to be difficult. It's that I'm building that talent pipeline. I'm building up the next phase of leadership. And I want my team to start exercising that muscle of problem solving, root cause analysis, thinking through solutions, taking that bit of ownership. And it's completely fine if they say, I'd rather have someone say, I fought through everything. This is my thought process. And I really couldn't land on anything. Can you help? Rather than this is my problem. I also know that I am still learning and growing and I want to understand how people are experiencing me. So I ask a lot of feedback and my question. So for instance, at a meeting, I'd say, what can I do to make this meeting better? On a one-to-ones, I say, what can I do to be more supportive? You know, how did you receive this feedback? It's this concept of you said we did that we have with customers. I, I like to extend that to myself. So I'll say, I heard X. Now I'm going to try to do Y. And as a leader, what values are most important to you? Inclusivity. Yeah. So I want to acknowledge people's efforts and also take great pains to include views of people that maybe are a bit more shy about speaking up or people that I know on a one-to-one basis that have really great ideas, but maybe feel less comfortable sharing those ideas or maybe struggle with how to articulate it. So I want to make sure that they're feeling included in whatever way they feel comfortable and giving them opportunities to shine. I want to create a safe space for healthy challenge. I don't think great businesses are built on consensus. I think they're built on being willing to have some conversations to get to the best outcomes. You know, we spend a lot of time at work. Let's make sure people feel supported and valued and part of the journey. What leadership lessons have you learned that have formed you into the leader you are today? The perfect is the enemy of the good. I actually learned this at startups. The banking was such perfectionist culture. It was a a shock to the system to have to adapt to this idea that the perfect is the enemy of the good and just get it done and move on with your life. And no one dies if the deck isn't great. Also, delegate, delegate, empower people to solve problems and move them from passive to active. So just understand that sometimes there's a trade-off. You're not going to get it as done or to the standard you might want, but you're giving someone an opportunity and you're also helping people develop. And also just trying to strike that balance between achievement against targets and the need to adjust for human factors. Sometimes should like not the end of the world. What are your three strengths and three weaknesses? My strengths, I'm very open. I want to have an open conversation. I invite feedback. I listen. I change. I'm also bold. I'm not afraid to be direct or to speak up. That's not all the time. You know, that's a skill. And I'm also looking for the best outcome for everyone concerned. Now, in terms of weaknesses, I want to go faster than the organization allows. So I know where we're headed, especially since I've gone through these build motions before. I'm eager to get us there. I have to remind myself, Rome wasn't built in a day. I can't go any faster. The second would be, I expect people to be as open, as curious as I am. That's a weakness is that I don't know why I find myself consistently surprised by it, but I need to be, what I am, I, I'm sensitive to it, but I, I think it's a weakness in terms of, I need to be better at you know managing my own expectations there. And as much as I just talked about delegate, that is one of my weaknesses. I need to delegate more. Let us now jump into the hottest topic in business today, workplace culture, unlocking the power of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. Rebecca, what does diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging mean to you personally? It means my workplace being a mirror for the outside world. So the demographic mix I see on the sidewalk, on the subway, in my customer portfolio, I want that in my workplace and in the C-suite. 
What do you consider being three to five signs of good company culture if you were to join a company? So again, this mirror, how closely or how far close are they from reflecting this demographic mix? Also, does the company ask the employees how they're doing? And if so, is it once a year? So once a month, how are they doing that? And what do they do after it? Also, do people actually take leave? Are laptops down, you know, six in the evening? Or is there a difference between what they're saying and what, you know, between theory and practice where they say it's six o'clock, but the culture is that everyone's still on the laptop into the late evening. Um, also community engagement. How are they engaged with their local communities and giving back? And I also want to see, you know, that diversity in the leadership team and talent pipeline. And as a woman, what has been the most significant barrier in your career and how have you overcome these challenges? Well, how long do you have? No, I'm kidding. Some of it is just very, these micro activities that just become a huge time sink. So I think about extra labor, the note taking, the arranging events, all the times in that women are required to or expected to pay attention to the detail, which is often very lengthy and painstaking work. My experience has been, I'm not speaking for anyone else, is that I think that not all men, some men in the workplace where they might have stay-at-home partners or their views about women extend into the workplace um, where they have expectation where the, those kind of tasks are done or there's even like emotional labor done by the women. And I, I think that that's a huge challenge. Um, I think also just assumptions about women and different life stages. So for instance, working mothers maybe not being as committed. Likewise, the assumption that childless women either somehow don't have a life or don't have significant you know, lives outside of her. And I'm really tired of still of, let me pause there. I guess I would put it under the, the banner of ageism is that we think of men in their 50s coming into their prime. This is the peak of their career. And there's still this like tired adage around women in their 50s kind of feeding into the furniture or becoming less, I don't know, effective somehow. I just find it deeply, deeply upsetting. What do you think is important for more women, women of color, non-binary and transgenders to join the tech industry today? Because diversity of thought, of life experience informs products. And products should be, again, mirror metaphor, the mirror of our customer base and our society. They need to be part of the conversation and they need to be part of the development for tech innovations to ensure that tech is made for everyone, not just a very specific demographic. Do you and how do you speak with your colleagues, peers and community about the DIB challenges, for example, salary gaps and promotions? Um, so I'm very, very open calling things out. So for instance, I had a really interesting and unique experience that one of the startups I worked at, I built up their DEIB from scratch. So everything from opening conversations and getting a lot of people around to say, how do we build a candidate profile, a good candidate pool? What does that look like? How do we check in with our teams? How do we embed a culture survey? How do we know that we're doing it right? How do we benchmark against our peers? So it's really understanding what do we want to do as a single entity, but also how do we know what's happening outside in the wider world? So when I think about salary gaps and promotions, this is about what does the data tell us? How can we use the data as our friend? Where are we seeing differences? Where do we need to rebaseline? This goes back to the discussion around peer networks. So in my own peer networks, opening up those conversations around, when you think about who was promoted, did you see any women? How many? Anyone LGBTQ? Did you see anyone with visible disabilities? And calling that out. There are many public and internal discussions about the barriers women, women of color, non-binary and transgender face from reaching higher position in the tech industry. How do you feel it has affected and is affecting you? And what is your advice on how to best unblock these roadblocks? 
The truth is that these leadership teams are still largely stale, pale, and male. Now, that said, we are seeing some green shoots within the talent pipeline growth. And anecdotally, I'm encouraged by this, is that some of the, not quite the C-suite, but some of the senior leadership moves I'm seeing, especially across the tech ecosystem, are more women. So we're getting there. I think it's starting to happen. And the momentum is less about quota filling and more about, you know, who has really gotten to the top and making those moves. So I do feel much more optimistic about even myself making it to the C-suite now than I did five years ago. So I'm blocking it. Well, this is, again, just be bold, speaking up, demanding answers from your team, also speaking up in public forums, being willing to challenge things. Today, tech companies spend a lot of marketing money to attract women, women of color, non-binary, and transgenders. However, at the same time, they're finding it hard to retain them. Articles show that women are leaving the tech industry. What is your best advice or strategies for how companies can work to build a stronger corporate culture that engages gender diversity and equity? The company culture needs to meet its workers where they're at. And so for women, non-binary and transgender people, it's really about what do they need in their lives and for their stage of life. So it could be, again, caring responsibilities. It could be just their own comfort in certain spaces. Can we create safer spaces? Do we have flex time? What are the working arrangements? How do we introduce and sustain support? And also this is painstaking work. We need to really check in and find out, well, what are the experiences? Rather than trying to say there's a one size fits all, saying here's a framework, here are the tools that are available. How can we allow people to cherry pick to match their stage in life and help them thrive rather than saying we have this standard model, everyone must be forced into it. And if you don't, you're forced out. And so we'll just keep throwing, you know, good money after bad and getting people in and turning them through a system where we're trying to, again, mandate that they fit this certain form and then they don't and the cycle repeats. What would you then say are a few challenges of implementing a DAIB culture in a workplace today? Look, people don't like to be told that they're biased. They don't like to be told that they're doing it wrong because one, it doesn't feel nice. And also it means they're on the hook to help solve it, right? So there's a belief that either it's not their fault or the problem is too big to solve or that these things are somehow hollow or it's too big. So it's not a once and done. So DEIB culture is a living, breathing thing. It evolves alongside as a workplace evolves. So implementing it and, you know, co-creating it and refining it is a lot of time and resources. It's not a side of desk project. Unfortunately, it's an investment and a lot of companies view it as kind of a time sink because it's difficult to pinpoint that ROI and people get nervous if we don't have KPI. So that can be a barrier or it means the impact is diluted. So they say, okay, well, this is too hard. So we're going to roll out a couple of training programs a year and hope for the best, which do better. You mentioned earlier about reaching the C-suite level. Why and how do you think companies would benefit from not just having women, non-binary and transgender leaders, but actually higher gender representation at C-suite level and boardrooms with actual mandate? Well, it's a carrot and stick issue, right? So we've tried the carrot, meaning the data shows the more women you have in the C-suite, the better the ROI, the better the financial performance. So we have the data. However, that data, that carrot is not enough to propel people to change. The C-suite hasn't changed that much. So we've had to shift to the stick approach. So meaning mandated and demanding answers. And then we start to get some changes in the C-suite, but there are all these little sort of whispers in the background that if they're only there to fill a quota, maybe that person is a suggestion, maybe that person isn't qualified when in fact they're usually 
probably 10 times more qualified than many of the other people there. So it becomes this no-win situation. So my hot take is that it's all of the above, so the carrot and the stick. And I think the big change is going to come from our younger generation and specifically shareholders where they start to demand those actions. So money talks. And how much do you think the tech industry has changed regarding DEIB since you joined? There's been some change, but not enough change. I think we're still in that conversation and exploratory phase. And that piece itself, just the exploration, the conversation, that's really evolved. And I think that's become a lot more nuanced and interesting and informed. And I think that the catalyst really was COVID. I know that's cliche, but ultimately it was a you know massive global social event. So of course, we're going to all be processing it in a big way. So that opened the conversation about how, you know, if we think about all of us going to remote work. So suddenly we had more people with disabilities, women, people with caring responsibilities, or those that just wanted to spend less time commuting, more time on mental health or mental wellness and well-being or their health. They finally had this autonomy and this flexibility, and that felt really great. So that brought about this wider conversation around bringing your whole self to work. So that's been in the zeitgeist, right, for the past few years and companies needing to adapt, listen to that and kind of adapt it and incorporate it. So we do seem to be moving very, very, very slowly, but there is movement with companies rather than dictating how the culture should be, actually working with the co-creating with the, the workers saying, okay, hang on. We know that the companies, that the workers like the work and maybe there's a space for us to work together on what the culture looks like. And that will necessarily be through this deep EIB lens, because now we can see that it's more than just men and women in the workplace, you know, exchanging hours for money. And looking back on your career, what one thing would you have changed in your working environment to break the bias? Absolutely being way more bold and vocal and calling things out in real time. So what I mean by that is when men speak over me, I interrupt and say, I was speaking or even saying, why did you interrupt? Because I think that people do it automatically, not out of you know cruelty. Also, if I notice someone not being included in a conversation, inviting that person in. So actively inviting inclusion. Also asking, being very vocal about why when I look around this room or do we all look the same? That's problematic. So I think it's, again, these micro actions over time. I think people feel more comfortable and kind of proud of themselves for being on committee and saying, well, we've started this committee. We've put on this really nice event and pat on the back for us. I'm putting in the hard yard. And I would say, yeah, kind of. But we also need to marry it with these smaller actions on a daily basis. And looking forward, what will you do as a leader to improve the bias for the next generation of women, women of color, non-binary and transgenders in tech? Again, I'm coming back to making sure that my team, I can influence hiring decisions and I want my candidate pool and my team to reflect the customer base. So that's where I have an immediate influence. Also, I have influence in how I can be a leader and improve this bias issue is that I also have a platform. I have these conversations with you in the ecosystems I'm in, whether it's tech or payments, I can do speaking, I can do engagement, I can do mentoring. All of these things help break the bias. Let us move on to another hot topic in business state, which is work-life balance and mental health. Rebecca, you are without a doubt a busy lifestyle. How do you take care of yourself to maintain good mental health? I do a lot of meditation. I also just give myself time to unplug. I think the cool thing now to say you bed rot. I'm a very pro-napper. But I also do a lot of activities completely unrelated to my job. So a lot of creative pursuits. So a lot of time with theater, music going out, painting, these kind of things. Have you ever experienced burnout? Yes, extreme burnout. I, in fact, so extreme, I had to take a six-month career break. 
I had to completely recalibrate. It required, you know, rest as an extreme sport. I was exhausted physically, mentally, spiritually. And so after resting, I said, okay, it's time for me to make some decisions. How do I prevent this? How do I know what my early warning signs would be? And this also helped me realize I wanted to get my MBA and leave banking. What is your advice on how companies can create a more mentally healthy workplace in that you now? I think it's just asking how people are doing. So how are your employees doing? So, you know, not everyone is so open. So doing that in a variety of different ways. It's part of your one-to-ones. It's part of surveys. Just ask, just check in with people. Also talking about mental wellness. I think it's great company I work for. They're very open and they have, you know, partner with mental wellness charities and they have lots of different events. And this is a way of normalizing it. So normalizing it as an issue, normalizing it as, you know, we can all participate and support one another. I think it's great. And then also just make sure your mental health care is provided for in health health plan, employee assistance programs, et cetera. What motivates you every day to get out of bed? I think the element of surprise. Every new day is a new opportunity for surprise and magic. Now, let us wrap up with a few words of wisdom and a piece of advice for our listeners. Rebecca, what is the best piece of advice you've been given that has helped you during setbacks in your role and career? Just asking myself, will this matter one year from now? five years from now, and also did anyone die? And then what is the worst advice you've ever been given and how did you tackle that? Hearing that good work speaks for itself. Nope, that is false. Categorically false. Workplaces are not meritocracies. You have to speak up. You have to be your own advocate. Put yourself out there. Have courage. Is there something you wish you would have known or a skill you wish you had when starting out in the tech industry? Yeah, I didn't know how sensitive and precious a startup founder could be and how the cult of personality really is a thing. You know, hashtag not all founders, but it's a thing. You know, when the founder is having a bad day, the company is having a bad day. If you had the ability to go back in time to when you were just at the beginning of your career, what advice would you give to your younger self? Ask for more money, a lot more money. Ask for more money all of the time. And also ask for new opportunities new stretch goals, even where I'm deeply uncomfortable, really stretch myself. And if you don't get the opportunities and don't get the money, move on. Don't waste your time. What advice will you give to young girls, women, women of color, non-binary and transgenders who want and trying to break into STEM fields today, especially wanting to become next generation leaders? Number one, we need you. Know that your voice and your skills are important. It's about being brave. It's about being courageous. And there's no single hack. There's no one way to be or one profile or one school. Go for it. But also to temper your expectations. Understand that whether you choose tech or not, there are going to be challenges. So if you enter tech and there are challenges, not necessarily these challenges are limited to tech. So be bold. LinkedIn is your friend. Send out 10 messages to thought leaders or people who have jobs you're interested about. Ask a few questions. Some people might not respond. So what? No one dies. And most of the time, people are happy to help. Last but not least, Rebecca, what is next for you in your role and career in tech? What are your career aspirations? Short term, I'm going to build up this payments division, integrate more acquisitions into the customer portfolio, build up my team for success. In the medium term, I want to build out access expansion into new companies. So I would love to learn more about acquisition M&A strategy and also building out the North American proposition in a more strategic GTM, you know, go to market role. Longer term, I want to be a CXO, a CCO or CEO, C-suite all the way. Why not? Go girl. Thank you so much, Rebecca, for being a guest on the Queens of Tech podcast. 
sharing your journey will without a doubt inspire change and reshape company culture for the next generation of women, women of color, non-binary, and transgender leaders in tech. Thank you, Jasmine. An absolute pleasure. Thank you. You're doing important work as well. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you have worked in the tech industry a minimum of three years and would like to share your journey, please nominate yourself or somebody you know to i at jasminemoradi.com. For more podcast episodes and to learn more about the Queens of Tech initiative and to support us, visit queensof.tech.